Good morning, everyone, and Happy New Year. So we still get to say that. When do we stop saying it? I'm not sure. I saw a friend in, that I haven't seen for a while in Checkers yesterday, and we were saying, when's the last time you actually get away with saying Happy New Year? I, was like, I don't know, but I'm going to say it now. Happy New Year. Glad to see you all. I am, uh, I am so glad to be here and share the first message of 2023 with you. Uh, as Pete said, my name is Tim. I'm married to Natasha. Uh, we have two kids uh, Tristan, age uh, nine, and Addie, age 17, I mean seven. <laughs> Woo. But there's some truth in that slip up. Goodness gracious, but um, we're, on for, we're in for a ride, aren't we, love? But, um, but I am I'm so glad, and, and Tasha and I have been part of this community for many years since its start, actually, in 2013, and, and haven't looked back. We are just so grateful for being here. And if you are new here or just checking uh, us out, or maybe just visiting. Maybe you're about to board a plane later today to go back home to start, uh, start the year and get into the normal rhythms. Um, um, I'm, I'm not from here, as you can probably tell. I'm from, uh, originally from the United States, but Cape Town, specifically the Valley, we have called home for the last uh, 12 and a half years, and we are just so grateful to, that God has called us here. Natasha, though, is from here, so that's the short version of the story of why I'm here. But over the, uh, the past two weeks, maybe like yours, uh, we as a family enjoyed a break from those normal rhythms uh, of life to rest and spend some quality time with each other. And as the best kind of quality time, you know when it's the best kind of quality time, it's when you forget what, what day of the week it is. Uh, that happened a few times with some of us. Um, and and that's, that's a good indicator, right? That we, we completely disengage and break from those normal rhythms. And part of our break was spent at an Airbnb on an olive orchard. It's an orchard, right? Olive farm, orchard, grove. Oh, there we go, olive grove. We not only marveled at those trees, 13,000 of them in all, um, but at the order of it. Trees, lines of them, and the straight paths worn in between them to tend the crop, right? And it made me think of another path, a very different kind of one called desire paths, uh, pathways of desire. And you might not have heard those terms before, but I bet that you're quite familiar with them because you and I play a part in making them, whether we know it or not. And they're quite different from the patterned paths of an orchard or a grove. Um, these are physical pathways of erosion that are created by foot traffic, traffic over time. And what's interesting about these pathways is we have used them so much that we often don't realize that we've been choosing a way that was not what the good people who paved the roads had originally intended. And it's probably one of those good people who put up this sign in an attempt to thwart the creation of a particular desired path. There's a sign that's, uh, are we having trouble with slides? Are we fine? Oh, no. Okay, cool. There's a, there's a sign where it says, caution bees. Yeah, there it is. Warning bees, don't go here. That's probably pretty effective. Um, but we see a lot of these pathways of desire, um, uh, lots of places, and one of them is university campuses that are made for walking, right? Um, this is an aerial view coming up, uh, a picture of the campus I spent six years of my life at, um, and it's a helpful example to, to notice the effect of desire paths. The academic quad is the center of the campus, and it, of course, gets the most concentrated foot traffic. And if you look closely, there's a red-bricked paved path right across the center of it, and, uh, and, and that's the original path. That's the path that the, the, the surveyors and the, the engineers put in first. 
Um, the rest are desire paths that were eventually paved, uh, only after a time of excess wear and tear on the lawn. Um, in fact, when new walking campuses are made today, uh, the planners install the lawns, but they don't immediately pave the paths, you see, because uh, they instead wait for those desire paths to emerge, to wear into the lawns, and then they pave those paths. It helps students, for the many years to come, know where to go. <laughs> um, but why am I telling you all this? I, I'm, I'm aiming today to intentionally provoke us to wear in some pathways, some pathways that we, we often don't choose amongst others. I'm talking about pathways that lead us to know God and know him better. And I'm talking about making the reading of and the meditating on scripture a regular rhythm in our lives. And before you check out, <laughs> these are pathways that we're made to create. Pathways are, are counter to what the world suggests. Uh, uh, they suggest, uh, suggest other, better ways uh, of living. The pathways I'm talking about are made as a response to something, or actually someone. A response to someone so amazing, so loving, and awe-inspiring. And when we, we really actually allow this truth to set in, we can't help but want to walk these paths, wear them in over the days and the years to come. And today's big idea, it comes from verse 12, chapter 4 of Hebrews, just eight words, and they're all on the screen. The word of God is alive and active. The word of God is alive and active. And this tells us that what we read in the Bible is as powerful and applicable today as it was when it was written. It's the Word of God. It's an incredibly significant way that we get to know God and know Him better. And research, it backs this up. There was a large-scale reveal, it's called Reveal, a survey, uh, conducted more than a decade ago, but it found that when it comes to spiritual growth, nothing beats the Bible. Scripture reflection is the number one way to help people grow in their love for Christ. They went on to say that of all the personal spiritual practices, prayer, confession, giving, journaling, solitude, serving, worship, we find that one stands out. Scripture reflection, more than any other practice, moves people forward in their love for God and others. And those, and they went on finally to say that those who would say that they are Christ-centered or working to stay close to Christ, they found that scripture reflection is twice as catalytic as any other factor, meaning it has twice the influence of any other spiritual practice to accelerate growth in spiritually mature people. Many Christ followers and not yet Christ followers, though, we've reduced reading the Bible to a task, a box to tick, an obligation to fill, a task to complete. But but it's not that, is it? It's not that at all. To read scripture is, is to actively participate in an adventure, an adventure that we've been invited into, and it's a journey in discovering who God is, what he's done for us, and when we accept him, how our lives, our values, our behaviors are transformed and are being transformed as a result. Now, today, I'm, I'm taking a, a page out of a series in the book of Hebrews that we did as a church nearly five years ago, 
It was an account in, in, entitled uh, Boldly Enter. Boldly Enter. And I feel that now, at the beginning of the new year, another year, it's a, it's a good time to, to circle back. Can I ask you, uh, you don't have to show of hands, just curious, if you've ever been up Lion's Head? And there's a, if you have, you, you'll see that, you'll know that there's a concrete structure at the top with a metal signpost that sticks out of it. That signpost at the top, that's the summit of the book of Hebrews, and it's today's passage. There's a particular passage in, in, in Hebrews, and today's passage is the summit of the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at this, and this is what it says. It's, it comes in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Let's pray. God, may, may the words of my mouth and the, the thoughts and the meditations of our hearts be truly acceptable to you. Um, we acknowledge that you are our rock, our, our redeemer, and uh, we ask that you, are the, you be the one speaking today to our hearts. Spirit, won't you fill this place and, and our hearts as we, as we draw near to you. Amen. Well, today we're looking at a 13-chapter uh, book of Hebrews, but we're not looking at all 13. We're just looking at a couple of verses in the middle of chapter 10. But before we dive in, I, I'd like to give a very brief overview of the book. And uh, first off, it's not a book, actually. I've been talking about a book. It's a letter. It's a letter. And, and the author is unknown, uh, but we know, we know at least that this person is one of the Apostle Paul's friends. And it's, it's someone who knew Jesus' disciples firsthand. And then the recipients of the letter, the ones intended to read it, the Hebrews, were the Jewish Christians, people who had been Jewish and then had, decide, and had made a decision to trust in Jesus, Jewish Christians. But exactly which Jewish Christians, we're not sure. We do know, though, that based on uh, some of the passages uh, that they were in Hebrews, that they were experiencing severe persecution for their faith in Jesus. Uh, from the Jewish community, actually, by the community, Jewish community. They, they even faced imprisonment. And some Jewish Christians were, were abandoning their faith, their newfound faith in, in Jesus, uh, because of this persecution. So the purpose of this letter at the time was to remind and encourage the people with this truth. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy and is worthy of all our trust and devotion no matter what. It's probably a message that we could probably lean into, too. Let me say it again. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy and is worthy of all our trust and devotion, no matter what. Now, Hebrews 13 chapters, it can divided, be divided into three parts, the ascent, the summit, and then the descent. Uh, first, the ascent, real quick. The, the first nine and a half chapters, all the way up to, but not including the verse that we're looking at today, uh, 19 of, uh, uh, verse 19 of 10. It, it, well, it highlights, it's a big chunk of scripture that highlights the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a nutshell, his unique identity, his unparalleled qualifications, his unmatched spiritual achievement, namely salvation and the renewal of sinners through his death, his resurrection, and the gift of his spirit. 
his death, his resurrection, the gift of the Spirit. It is, in a nutshell, what Jesus has done, what has happened. And the theologian Michael Eaton, he says this about what the first nine and a half chapters communicate. Jesus is God's full and final revelation to us. Above everything else, he has provided a way for the forgiveness of our sins, no matter how bad they might be. He has provided the possibility of a cleansed conscience and access to the living God. But after nine and a half chapters, the writer's main teaching, it's, it's finished. So, so what is left? Well, it's the this, this summit and descent. Well, what's that all about? Well, the summit, as I said, is today's text. It's the heart and the summary of everything the writer wants to say. It's the heart and the summary of everything that he wants to say. It's an appeal to the readers to make use of what is available to them. We're going to get there. But it's not just to the readers of the time. It's, it's to us. It has everything to do with your life and mine. It shows us how God can use something written 2,000 years ago and speak through it into your life and mine. God's word is alive and active. The rest of Hebrews, uh, just to, to, to wrap the summary, um, after today's summit passage is, is the descent. And, and it tells us the practical implications of the gospel for the way we live. It gets really practical. It gets, it gets, very, it gets very explicit about how we should live in light of our possession of Jesus Christ. And he appeals to us to actually make use of what has been given in Jesus. So let's go to the summit today. Let's go to the summit to begin making sense of all of this. I'd love for you to, to look at those first nine and a half, half chapters and then the rest after these, these four verses today. Um, and there's a little bit of a uh, provoke there at the end. Uh, just wait for it. But, uh, but let's, let's look at today's summit passage to get things kicked off. And let's look at it again. Let's read it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. So first, what is this most holy place all about? I already said it earlier that this letter was written to Jewish Christians, but I didn't mention the timing. It was just before A.D. 70, when, when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. That is a known event. Now, the temple consisted of three parts, the outer courts, the, the holy place, or the inner courts, and then the most holy place. And essentially, the temple was a place where God's immediate presence was found. And a little bit, a little bit about this most holy place, God's presence was said to be manifest in this inner chamber. Uh, legends ha legend has it that, that when the Romans actually destroyed it in AD 70, um, they left one wall, the western wall, standing. And to this day, uh, Jews gather in prayer at the crumbling wall, and it's actually not the correct one, but that's another story. But, but the point is that they, they gather to take heart that this is where God once lived. Which brings me to the next point, the inaccessibility of the most holy place. The temple strongly entrenched in the mind of Jews that God is inaccessible. He's unapproachable. The outer courts were open to the Jewish community, the holy place was only open to the priests, and the most holy place, on the other side of a very thick curtain, was only open to the high priest, only once a year, at the risk of his life. And the point is, this most holy place had previously been inaccessible. 
So next, the most holy place in the heavenly throne room. This is fascinating. The Jews understood the most holy place to be a copy of, G- of God's heavenly throne room, the place where God lives and rules the universe. So in a sense, God had a, a glorious residing center in heaven. He has a glorious residing center in heaven. And, and the most holy, cl- holy place, well, that was his shabby home away from home. Uh, but hold on. If, if, G- if the Jews believed that you were not allowed in the most holy place, they also felt that God who lives in heaven was inaccessible, unapproachable. But why? Why was God's immediate presence so inaccessible? Why was this such a de- devout belief? Well, it's, it's validated. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. Eden was God's original home on earth. Adam and Eve lived there. They walked. They talked with God. But then Adam and Eve, they were morally and spiritually corrupted. And and we're told, and we read in Genesis, that God put them out of the garden and placed angels to guard, and not just angels, but a flaming sword to guard the entrance. We see that in Genesis 3. And in effect, they were shut out from the closest relationship with God. Well, this veil, this veil in the temple that, that shuttered the most holy place from everyone else, well, it kind of did something similar. It, it was a no-entry sign for the fallen, for the, for the sin-stained human beings. It, it said, which sinful human can possibly stand in the presence of the one who is a consuming fire? And even this high priest, once a year, went, after purifying himself with sacrifice in hand, still entered with fear this might be his last minute of life. Now, ancient Jewish folklore tells us that the high priest would enter the most holy place with a bell tied to his garment and a rope tied around his ankle like a surf leash. <laughs> and the, the rope would, would extend out under the veil in reach of other priests who waited outside. As long as they could hear that bell, they knew that the most high priest was still alive But if the bell stopped for a very long time, they would assume that he had died, and they would reel him back out with that rope. But now, verse 19, we have confidence to enter. Confidence. I'm going to look at that word. But this this idea, this idea, as they're reading this, this letter, it would be jarring It would be jarring to Jewish ears, clashing with everything they knew. The last thing anyone, uh, uh, the very last thing anyone had as they entered the most holy place was confidence. Uh, As long as they had any memory of sin or failure, they would be legitimately terrified. Confidence to enter. But look, when, when we trust in Jesus, despite all our sins, our failures, we're given authorized entry. I want to look at this word confidence. The English word confidence, it, it might be a little bit misleading for this passage. It speaks more of an emotion, it kind of associated with an emotion. But the Greek word the translators attempt to get across is this parasiari. Parasiari. Parasiari is not an emotion, it's not a feeling of confidence. It, it rather speaks of an an objective fact. 
It speaks of the gift of authorization to be and to speak freely in the presence of another. It speaks of the gift of authorization to be and to speak freely in the presence of another. We have authorization to enter. Have you ever stood outside a concert venue uh, or some event you wished you could get into and, and you didn't have a ticket, right? But then out of the blue, someone gives you a ticket? That's authorization, right? That's authorization. Parasiari is not in itself an emotion, it's authorization, but it can surely lead to a lot of positive emotion depending on uh, to what or to whom it grants you access. Is there a better place to be given access than to, to God's immediate loving presence? And I want to appeal to some of us, if you haven't yet discovered who God revealed in Jesus is, the great, good God, I understand you might not be that excited yet. But if you camp out in the last few chapters of Hebrews, for example, you may very well begin to see the awesomeness of this authorization to freely be and to freely speak in his presence, and then feelings would emerge. And if you're a new believer, sometimes it takes a while. Let me, let me try to give you an analogy. Imagine someone who's been in prison for a very long time, and they've been released. He or she may be authorized to enter the world at large, but they may not feel free after all that time behind bars. He or she may, they've been in, they've been in prison so long, and, and in the same way, many believers may not feel confidence to enter this very presence of God but in fact, we are authorized, we are permitted to do so. The freedom to come close to God, who is a consuming fire, is ours, whether we feel it or not. It's there. We may now stand with, with holy boldness, where angels veil their faces with their wings in ceaseless adoration. We see this in Isaiah 6, singing, holy, holy, holy. Now, this might sound a little out of this world to you. It's because it is. But the, but the truth is, there's a chorus we're invited to join, a praise God chorus, a hallelujah chorus. I think all of us enjoy music to some degree, right? Um, I grew up around music. My mom is an excellent uh, pianist, a violinist, a vocalist. Um, she, bought, she taught beginner strings in primary school. Uh, and in our home for many, many years. And it's, in fact, a big part of the reason why I started studying violin from age 8 through to 18. Um, I really appreciated that, that, that period in my life. And my sister, she's making a career out of music. She's a, she's a performer and an educator um, in vocal and piano. And my twin brother, he had a bit of a stint in music as well. He played the trumpet for a few years in school and until he had to decide between the football team and the marching band, and he made his choice. Can't do both. Um, and then my for, as for my dad, well, as he likes to put it, if you'd asked him, he, all the kids got his musical talent. Um, but he still has a deep appreciation for it, especially old hymns. And whether, whether or not you're musical, whether you're more like my dad or more like my mom, all of us appreciate music in some form, right? It speaks to us in some way. Stirring rhythms, inspiring melodies, harmonies, the lyrics, I mean, amazing grace this morning, right? I mean, for some of us, it's, it's very powerful. It's very powerful. 
Why is that? Why is music so powerful? And plenty of research has been done to explain why music is of such high value across all human societies. It seems to touch our hearts in ways that otherworldly things cannot. But I would say that our inclination to music comes from a deeper place, from our heart's deepest cry for God's presence. In his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves points out in the Gospel of John that until we know and enjoy God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are in a musicless universe of deep darkness. Until we know and enjoy God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are in a musicless universe of deep darkness. It's interesting that, that, that uh, Reeves points to music as an example. Well, it's because there's a chorus we're invited to join, and it's music-filled. I'm going to place, tell you a brief story. Some of you might have heard this, but in a small London house, the street's name was Brook, not that it matters, but a waiter is sighing with resignation as he arranges a tray of food he fully expects will not be eaten. And for more than a week, he's, he's faithfully continued to wait on his employer, who's an eccentric composer, who spends hour after hour isolated in his room. Morning, noon, evening, the man delivers appealing meals, very scrumptious meals to the composer, and returns later to find bowls and platters practically untouched. Once again, the waiter, he's preparing himself to go into the same routine, muttering under his breath about how oddly temperamental some musicians can be, and he swings open the door, and he's stopped in awe. He looks up at the composer, who is visibly startled, tears running down his face, and the composer turns to him and cries out these words, I did think I see all heaven before me and God himself seated on his throne with his angels. Now those were the words of George Frederick Handel, just after he penned what would become one of the most famous pieces of music to this day the Hallelujah Chorus, which is part of an 18th century narrative musical work and is considered to be Handel's crowning achievement called Messiah. Now, Messiah is a, is a three-part narrative that covers Jesus' life from prophecies about his coming to his sacrifice for, human, for human, humankind and to his resurrection. It premiered in Dublin 280 years ago as a charitable benefit and raised enough funds to free 142 men from debtor's prison. And the city newspaper described it as far surpassing anything that has been performed in this or any other kingdom. And it was originally scored for just 50 people, including both orchestra and vocalists, but today, many performances scale up many, many times more. In fact, a few years ago, a renowned 300-person choir recorded a virtual version of Hallelujah Chorus. Interestingly, it was before COVID, uh, but they wanted to, to demonstrate something. They did a virtual 300-person choir in this room, but then with 2,000 others joining them. Now, we know how to sing birth Happy Birthday on, on Zoom doesn't work out so well. They figured it out somehow. But here's a selection of the comments from the video's post on YouTube. It's had millions of views. Here's some comments. Some of the first ones, I didn't have to look for them, actually hard. This gets me every time. Praise be to God on high. 
Another one, I'm Muslim and I love this music. Another one, I'm Messianic and this song makes the tears flow freely. Another one, I wish all of humanity could sing together in this sort of fashion. And then finally this one, a little bit longer. I sang this in high school and one of my most precious memories was when our choir director invited anyone from the audience to come and join us. Uh, my grandfather came up, stood beside me, and he, listening to him sing this beautiful music with me will be a treasured memory forever and ever. So, so it's a meaningful, a meaningful piece of, of work in the moment, but it has much larger uh, implications. And it's a timeless work of art because it points to something far greater. It might have freed 142 men from Bethdebter's prison, but how many more does the gospel free forever? This piece was called far surpassing anything in civilization, but how much greater is the chorus of praise in God's kingdom of heaven? And it's been adapted so that thousands more can participate, not just those original 50, but how many more are invited to boldly enter, to be with, and sing their hearts out for Jesus in the real hallelujah chorus in heaven forever and ever. And it's pieces like this and others that just, just give a hint, just give a hint of the joy we get to express when we say yes to Jesus and freely enter, boldly enter into his presence. So we have confidence to enter. When we understand the confidence or begin to understand this authorization that we're given, it will feed the feeling of confidence that we can have in approaching God. After all, encountering God, being able to encounter him, is the best gift that the gospel has won for us. So this, this year, let's experience the joy and the power and the goodness of God speaking to each of us personally through his word. It's one of the most amazing ways we get to encounter God through his word. Are you ready? I like to call this making a meal of God's word. Here's some, some practical things as, as we wrap. And, and this comes from something that ugh, Common Ground put together like 12 years ago. This is before South Penn existed. I still have this. Tosh knows I'm a bit of a hoarder. But this something is not something I'm ever going to throw out because I probably should digitize it. But anyway, um, it's, it's something that really helped us grapple uh, for it was a couple weeks worth of a series with how to engage with the word. Um, and I can't find it online. I'm sorry. I'm kind of dropping, like promoting something we can't even get. To, but maybe we can, f I'm sure there's many other things since then that we've put out that we can use. But I'm courageously asking all of us today to make a meal of the word this year. First thing, start somewhere. Start somewhere. There's no shortage of options these days. This is not the only thing. In fact, it's, it's the, maybe the Hebrews devotional. I mean, on, online, you can go there to, to come around church forward slash devotionals. There's a slew of devotionals there for, our, for the taking, including Hebrews devotional, which covers from today's passage through to the end. Maybe that's where you want to start or any other reading plan. Then number two, think of Scripture as spiritual food. Make a meal of it. You can't spiritually survive or thrive without it, Right? So as Jesus said, people shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We see that in Matthew 4. And then next, make a firm decision. 
here and now to read the Bible every day with an open heart towards God and an open ear towards the Holy Spirit. And give yourself six weeks to form the habit, and then you'll be off. And another thing to remember is it need not be long. Hey, 10 minutes. Longer if possible, but, but don't, don't uh, set yourself up to thinking that you've got to devote hours a day. Start with 10 minutes and go from there. Another important one is anticipate spiritual resistance. This is not something that, uh, that, that the devil wants to have happen, people moving towards God. So ask God for power to follow through and don't give up. Use a good translation, a helpful one, maybe. It might be NIV or ESV. There are several others. Download the Bible on your app or, like many of us, resurrect it back onto your app that might be quietly offloaded and maybe you need to onload it again. Pray. Pray before you read. Invite God to open your spiritual eyes and ears as you read those verses. Come with expectation and openness. We see in Psalm 119, Open my eyes so I can see the wonderful things in your word. Maybe that's a verse you can start with before you open the word. And select just one verse, one verse or phrase in your mind and heart from that passage you read for the next 24 hours. Something that stood out to you. Pray, discern, digest what God is saying to drive truth deeper into your life. And I find that God uses uh, that very scripture sometimes to shed light on a particular matter that I'm grappling with, or a brother might, or a sister might be grappling with. The Word of God is truly alive and active. And then finally, find two other people with whom you can share your experience. Uh, form an SMS, a WhatsApp group for accountability daily or as often as you can. Send each other the verse reference that most spoke to you and why. And not only does this encourage everyone in the group, it also is a form of, of, of accountability to regular, regularly honor God's word. Let's boldly create and wear in those pathways of desire that lead to the only way, the one and only truth, and the one and only life. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. I'd love to ask the band to come up um, if, if they can. And as they do, I'd like to just engage with a couple of different kinds of people in the room and in the area <laughs> outside. Um, if you already trust in Jesus, for those of us who already made a decision to follow Jesus, can I urge us to utilize our authorized access to God? It's there. Boldly enter into his presence. We've got full assurance of faith. Why don't we galvanize our walk with God by instilling a practice of feeding on his word and, as James says, doing, it, doing what it says. But if the notion of following Jesus is something that's new to you, uh, perhaps today you've sensed a tug on your heart or not, but either way, perhaps he's calling you. Perhaps open your heart to consider. Perhaps he's calling you to freshly trust in Jesus as your Savior as the one who brings you into the love of God, the forgiveness of mercy, or the forgiveness and mercy, and the grace and the music of God. Come and take hold of it. Jesus, he died once for all, and his gracious offer of forgiveness is real, and it's ready for the taking. 
Jesus is our authorization into friendship with God now and forever in heaven. And you, we don't need to spend another day in spiritual prison cell outside of his presence. And if you're new to the Bible or don't know how, you know, these devotionals can help, but, but also something like this, which is this Ignite thing. Peter, Peter mentioned it, but this Ignite is our, our, you know, just an amazing opportunity to just dive in, start somewhere. Wherever you are on the faith journey, the invitation is open-armed into a world of adventure with God. So let me pray. And I'd love for us to just uh, take time then and sing or sit or just be and, and, and talk to God. So God, we, we come to you this morning. We ask you to allow us. We already know you do, but we just want to say it out loud. Allow us to draw near to you. But not with just devotion, but delight. Um, Father, won't you breathe vitality, won't you breathe vitality into this rhythm of our lives, of these times with you, a rhythm that, we, that is repeatable and sustainable, but life-giving, not a box to tick. And God, open our eyes to the wonder of who you are and how we can walk in your freedom and in your light as we are, just as we are, as we consider all you are and have done. And we finally thank you, God. We finally thank you that, that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can encounter you freely because the, really the greatest gift of the gospel is the ability to encounter and be with you and be in relationship with you, God. Amen.